0: This morning is going to be in Mark chapter 9 and uh, I've broken this up into three different sections so I'm going to read part of it we're going to stop and talk about it and we're going to do that two more times as we dive in to what really comes down to a lesson on greatness and so we're going to start here in Mark chapter 9 starting in verse 30 they went on from there and they passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. So let's stop right there for a moment. One thing that that helps us is that the context of this passage is incredibly significant. The chapters in Mark that lead up to this are like the greatest hits. Of Jesus. You've got feeding of the 5,000. You've got Jesus walking on water. You've got Jesus healing the sick. Jesus healing a deaf man. Jesus healing a blind man. Jesus feeding 4,000. You've got the story where where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, And Jesus calls his shot and says, upon this confession, I will build my church. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And this same right up before then is where um, he has to rebuke Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Like, that's an intense thing. And then right before our passage, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to experience the transfiguration. Where, where there's this amazing experience that only the three of them got to experience. And then they came down. And they find out that the rest of the disciples had the opportunity to cast out a demon, and they couldn't do it. And so we have this this kind of up and down. We've got great things happening. We've got some strong rebukes. We've got these amazing miracles. And then what we see happens here in Mark chapter 9 is that Jesus starts his last and final journey. This is the beginning of the trip that will take Jesus to the cross. And so there's an urgency Right There's an urgency to Jesus' words. There's a focus to what's happening, and it's incredibly significant. Here we are a couple weeks out from Easter, and so we understand kind of as things are pointing there, we know nobody wonders what Easter's about. We, we have a focus that we know that we're going to be looking at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, this is the first time Jesus knows that it's coming, and he's telling them the Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men to be killed. And so that's where we pick up here In Mark chapter 9 and in verse 30, it says, oh, sorry. He said that the first thing I want us to see here is he said he doesn't want anybody to know. Now, doesn't that sound kind of hypocritical and contradictory? Like we're supposed to be preaching and teaching and and sharing the good news, but we get to this in Mark chapter 9 and it says Jesus was trying, but he didn't want anybody to know. Well, the reason for that is that it was strategic. It seems confusing, but it's really important. The first thing I want us to look at is that there's more to a relationship With Jesus than just being a part of a crowd. There's more to relationship with Jesus than just being a part of a crowd. So Jesus was no stranger to big crowds gathering um, when he was performing miracles and word would get out and and he would preach to these large, he just fed 4,000 and and 5,000. But he had also already, for those of you like, well, that's not fair to Galilee. Why wouldn't he let other people know what was going on? And what I want us to see first of all is that he's already been here. This is not his first trip. Matter of fact, this is the region of his hometown. And the gospel went out in Galilee. And this is one of the places where they turned and tried to kill him for the message that he was bringing. This is the place where it says a prophet's not without honor and it's it's without honor in his hometown. And so, Jesus has been here before. The gospel message has gone out, but the people were not receptive. And so Jesus had the freedom on this trip to not repeat that. And he had another thing in mind, and that was this. He needed to spend some close time with his disciples. He needed... To not meet in a big crowd, he needed to get them one-on-one, two-on-one, three-on-one, or or as the 12, he had some teaching that needed to be done. If our experience, if your experience as a follower of Christ is only happening in crowds, I want to invite you to something more because there's a much more intimate way to be in fellowship with Jesus. Crowds are great, and it's so exciting to worship together and to to share corporate things together, but there's more. It's not just about the crowd crowds there's an intimacy to Jesus there's a smaller more focused relationship of getting to know him scholars think that picking up in the next passage that the setting is actually Peter's house and and knowing Jesus is is like that it's not just these big groups but it's like Jesus coming in Jesus coming over Jesus seeing the real you and loving you and teaching you anyway and that's why in the church we we don't just offer large groups on Sundays we have community groups here they're talking about welcome groups and you can find your way from the crowd. You can narrow your focus. You can find places to where you can learn more, see more, experience more. And actually, the smaller, the closer that you get with Jesus, the stronger it is. And when you have people who have experienced that closeness, it carries over into the crowds, and the crowd experience is so much more significant. And impacting, but what I see here is that why didn't Jesus preach to the crowds? It's because he had some things that he needed to talk about with his closest. Followers. And so it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is inviting us to. It's like maybe you came to the crowd and you've, you've met Jesus and you've given your life to him and you've become a Christian, but let me invite you further. Can you get us, get your, get the, just get in the funnel and let it whittle down and become more focused and more intentional where there's some things that we need to learn. And we're going to see that there's a precedent for that here. Also, because Jesus has just told them the Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men. That's a pretty intense teaching, right? You would think that if you're in a small group and Jesus has just told you that, that you would be thinking, man, that's terrible. What are we going to do about that? And what about after that? What are we supposed to do? Instead, their conversation quickly moves to, hey, which one of us is the greatest? Who do you think? Is it me or, or is it you? And at the end of that, we just see... They didn't understand. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And instead of stopping to ask questions, they just moved on and started focusing on themselves. The thing here I want us to see is that it's okay to have questions. It's okay to see things in the scriptures and go, I don't know if I understand that. It's not really culturally acceptable in the church because a lot of times we feel the pressure to have it all together and know all the answers and portray a certain image. But we see that here with the disciples. It's that Jesus just talked about his death, burial, and resurrection, um, which has a lot of different elements to it. And they were kind of like, yeah, we don't really get that. Who's the greatest? Instead of going, hey, Jesus, we've got you right here in this room. Could you tell us more about that? Could you help us to understand What's going on? And it's a mistake that we don't have to repeat. When you see something in the scriptures that that you're confused by or that that you're maybe even uncomfortable by, you're like, I've never heard anything like that. A smaller community gives you the space to go, could you tell me more about that? And you won't be judged. You won't be condemned. There's nothing wrong with having questions about what Jesus has said. The Greek verb they use there is that they were continuing to not understand. They were continuing to not understand. You and I don't have to be in that same position. That is why we're here, to encourage each other, to help each other, know more, follow more closely, and experience all that there is in this life of following Christ. So the first thing I want us to just, just believe is that there's more to being, there's more to a relationship with Jesus than just being part of the crowd. So let's move on to the next section. And they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys discussing on the way? Does this just sound like dad and some kids? We've got three teenagers like, hey, what are you guys talking about there? Nothing. They say nothing because they know that they're going to get busted for whatever it was they're talking about. But they kept silent for they were on, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12. He called a family meeting, right? He's like, okay, family meeting. Let's talk about this. And he sat down and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so they were arguing about who was the greatest. And here's maybe why. Three of the twelve just got to go on this amazing encounter with Jesus to witness the transfiguration when they came back the other nine had the opportunity to cast out a demon and they couldn't do it and so instead of unpacking their misunderstanding and their confusion about what Jesus has said they went back to the thing that happened before that and it was like hey we got to go and be on the mountain we must be better than y'all you were here you couldn't even cast out that demon what's that about We must be greater than you. Like, isn't it? So I mean, these guys were young. We have to remember that the disciples were very young. And here's another encouraging thing for us. The disciples go on. Like, we're sitting here worshiping in this way, in this place, preaching this gospel, because eventually they got their act together and were used incredibly for the glory of God. The beginnings are not as glorious. They had mistake after mistake, confusion, disorientation, focusing on themselves, missing the point. There's hope for everybody in the kingdom of God. You may be sitting there right now, and you don't have all the answers. That doesn't mean it was a very short time from what we're reading right now that these guys were laying down their lives, and the church was being built because of their faithfulness and utter devotion to Jesus. But back here, they're like, yeah, so don't count anybody out just because it seems like they're clueless about the things of God. There's hope for everybody. But they were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, what I love also is that Jesus doesn't rebuke them. I mean, he does sometimes, doesn't he? Sometimes Jesus, you know, just called Peter Satan. That's a pretty strong rebuke, right? But in this case, he doesn't go, hey, you guys a bunch of idiots. When are you going to get this together? It just says he calls them all together, and he sits down in his teaching rabbi capacity, and he says, let's talk about this. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their desire to be great. I love that. So Jesus didn't rebuke them and say, you know what? It's not about greatness and you shouldn't want to be great. He said, you want to talk about greatness? Let's talk about it. Let's look at what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And, and he, he's in this house, right? And so Jesus is just the master of finding what's around him and creating an illustration of what's there. And he. They think that he might be in Peter's house, so this may be one of Peter's kids that's running around, and Jesus grabs this kid, and he says, you want to talk about being great in the kingdom? Look look at this kid. Look at this kid. And in our culture, right, kids are pretty elevated. A lot of people base their entire social calendar around kids' activities and soccer and school events and extracurricular activities and just leveraging every amount of free time towards whatever it is. That didn't happen in ancient Hebrew culture. Kids were just kids, and there was a lot of them, and they weren't really valued at the time. And so for Jesus, he's picking up this kid as something that, that was appreciated but not elevated at all, and Jesus elevates him. And he says, let's talk about this child. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and the Father. Now, I do want us to say that children are the example that he uses of being a servant and all, but they are not the only option here. But they are an option. So we should also stop and, and just for a moment say the impact that a child can have. The children in this church, they're not the church of the future, they're the church of right now. They are every bit as much a part of any church as the older people in the church. As a matter of fact, for those of you that spend weeks over there serving, and for those over there that can't hear us right now, thank you for sacrificing your time for the children, because they are the church of right now, but they're not going to be children for very long. They are going to be leading this charge more and <laughs> quicker than we want to admit, right? We're not getting any younger. I'll speak about myself. I've got three teenagers all of a sudden. I'm like, what happened? They were just like little bitty a second ago, and now they're old, and now they're developing their own identity, and now they're developing their own passion for ministry, and they're not here with us this morning because they're serving in in our home church because that's what God's they feel like God is calling them to do. So by elevating children, we're saying that there are things that the world kind of says aren't important, that Jesus is saying those are the things that we should be paying attention to. And one of my favorite, um, I, I love Bono, and it's like I'm older than most of you probably, so I'm, I, I make no apologies, right? It's an old rocker guy. But nobody has done more in our lifetime for the good of other, for the poor than Bono. His advocacy work has quietly woken up the West to the difference they could make. Both the government and the church, he had this campaign, what are you doing about Africa? At the time, there was very little being done about Africa. And all of a sudden, he went and knocked on Bill Hybel's doors, one of the most influential pastors in the country. And he said, what are you doing about Africa? And Bill Heibel said, Nothing. And, go, and they had a conversation, and all of a sudden, they start working together to bring good news to the HIV population in Africa. We live in a time where, H, in our lifetime, HIV has gone from you're going to get it and you're going to die to where you can live 100% a normal life with an HIV diagnosis. That's happened in our lifetime. That's an amazing accomplishment. We are watching extreme poverty statistics actually decrease. We are actually making a difference. There's going to be a cure for malaria in our lifetime. Like, and on and on, it's woken up people to realize that there's things that they can do. And people are sometimes uncomfortable with him and and wonder about his theology. But he's very clear that his motivation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to a little bit of that tension in just a moment. But these amazing transformations started when Bono visited some kids in Africa. And he said this, Because when you truly accept that those children in some far-off place in the global village have the same value as you in God's eyes, then your life is forever changed. You see something that you can't unsee. Looking into the eyes of these desperate children woke something up into him about the value that they had. And this, I think Jesus is saying this, to value what is unvalued. And the reason that we should do that is that it could just have easily been you or I born in a remote village in Africa. There's nothing that you did, there's nothing that I did to be born where we were born, to experience the affluence of America. And I'm not saying we should feel guilty about that. Some people want to make you feel guilty about what we have and, and that we can write checks. We didn't choose it. God placed us here. It's something, it's our responsibility to live faithfully in the context that he's called us to live. However, we can also be mindful of the vulnerable people that are out there, the people that nobody's speaking up for. And it's not just kids in Africa. It could be lonely people at the place where you work or you go to school or or people you drive by or people you live by. And so remember, the example is the child, but that's not the all that Jesus is talking about. Otherwise, we would just all pack it up and serve kids every day. And that's it. That is one incredibly valuable thing that people do. But the other reality is that there's a lot of other examples. Jesus befriended the sick and the lepers and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the people that nobody else wanted to have anything to do with. Jesus became their servant. And that's the picture that, that Jesus is, is trying to trying to paint, and that those things, when we give our lives serving those people in vulnerable places that nobody's advocating for, we'll find that God uses them to transform us. He uses them to transform us. And I'll talk about kids for a second. Some of our most significant experiences in ministry as followers of Christ have been because we empowered our kids to be heard, because they challenge us. They opened doors that we never would have opened at the swimming pool when they're two years old, meeting people who were separated from the church and and being ridiculed for their relationship, eventually restore their relationship with Christ and go on to serve Him beautifully. Why? Because my two-year-old wanted to go say hi. And they're lifelong friends of ours today. When, When they're at the playground and they come out with a new friend, don't count out the fact that God may use you to lead that family through a process of adoption. Because that happened to us. Happened to us in a few ways. Then we have adopted two kids from Ukraine. I'm gonna do this again. It's gonna be loud. Sorry. I'm just falling out. All right. And then what's amazing is how those adopted kids who were living in obscurity that nobody was valuing, have now learned to value other people and become advocates for adoption in ways that we never could. Our kids, and time, I was meeting with a church planner recently, and, and they were their church was brand new, and he was telling me a story about, about his daughter, and we, and we live in Fort Bend County, and it's similar here, I'm sure, but Fort Bend County is the number one ethnically diverse place in the world. There is no majority in Fort Bend County. We have every tribe and tongue on every single street. And the greater Houston area is similar wherever you go, but it's this amazing opportunity. So it's like we don't have to go to the nations in, 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 like we used to. We should, but God's brought the nations to us. So how do we, as the people of God, be faithful to what God has brought to us? And I was talking about that with this pastor, and he was telling me about his daughter who had met some neighbors who were from India, And she had this idea. She loved their clothing and she loved their culture. And she said, what if we invited them over and we taught them about American culture so that we could learn more about each other? And it was just kind of a passing story. I said, don't miss that. She just gave you a mission strategy for your church. Empower that. Count it. That will make a difference. We have to be willing to look at the kids and to look at the vulnerable, to look at who nobody else is looking at and seeing that God says, value those people because they see something in the kingdom that we don't see. And when we serve them, then they help us with the kingdom. If anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. So the question is, what's the equivalent of that child for you? Maybe you're, conv- like you're feeling some conviction. You're going, actually, God's given me amazing kids and I treat them um, like they're going to be great one day, but what if they're great now? And, and what if there's things that they're saying and things that they're leading to, like, hey, Dad, our neighbors are outside. We should go meet them. Okay. It's nap time. Why don't we go outside? Okay. Why? Because they see something that I don't see. But if it's not children, what's the equivalent of that for you? What people has God placed in your path? And I'm saying you don't have to probably go anywhere different than where you go every day to find a least of these that you can become a servant to, because God says, this is how we become great. But sadly, sadly, the disciples, they weren't focused on things like the child. They were talking about things like, how do we gain more status? How do we gain more position? How do we gain more influence? Who's the greatest? And The next thing from this passage, I think the point is that true greatness is measured by compassion not comparison. True greatness is measured by compassion, not comparison. And I'm not talking about compassion in terms of just the feels, you know? Oh, I feel so terrible about those people. True compassion translates to action very quickly. That breaks my heart. I wish somebody would do something. I think God's calling me to do something, and now I'm doing something. It's not just like, I'm so sorry, and I'm so heartbroken about the horrendous conditions in parts of Houston and around the world. But it's, it's a movement from just a thought and a feeling to an action. But you know what's easier to do is to compare ourselves with other Christians. And that's what they're doing. They're not even comparing themselves against people outside of the kingdom of God. They're comparing themselves to people inside the church. And I'm going to tell you something. That's a low bar. That's a low bar. You'll always be able to find somebody who calls themselves Christian who's underperforming compared to you. That shouldn't, motive, that shouldn't make us feel good. Well, I'm, at least I'm not where they are. Actually, if you're saying that about anybody, what's the compassion you're having for that person to help get them further along than you are? Where's the compassion? Where's the motivation becoming action to become a servant of all? Not looking to other people and saying, oh, essentially, they're my servant. I'm so much better than they are. But in culture, that's not uncommon. We see that where we work, elevating ourselves to get what we need and we want to accomplish all of our goals. And there's nothing wrong with goals. There's nothing wrong with healthy corporate trajectories. But what there is something wrong with is looking at other people and using the comparison of those other people as the the indicator of whether or not we're on the path to greatness. Jesus is showing us very clearly here that true greatness, it's not about comparison. It's not about looking at somebody else and evaluating whether we're higher or better or more holy than they are. The measure here is what are you going to do about this child? What are you going to do about the people that God has placed in front of you? And here's the amazing thing about it. This heart for compassion and it's not like obligation. And it's not like, you know, doing good because we feel guilty and we want to do something to make us feel better about all that we have. We're not talking like, is it, it's, it's fine to buy Tom's. It's fine to buy Noonday. It's fine to do all these socially good things. But that is not necessarily you being moved to action. That's helping somebody else be moved to action. That's investing in something. But I'm talking about personally. Relationally, there's something that God's preparing for you. There's an opportunity your life matters so much. You bring something unique to every situation, and there's a relational part for you to play in the kingdom of God by the compassion you have for another person, for another person. And this is the thing: we worship a unique God. There's no other faith system where the God had compassion for the people and came. To dwell among them. He left heaven and came to us. That is a unique attribute of the God that we worship. Every other faith system is here's God, see if you can get there by doing this, 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 and this. So what we see is that we have a God who was compassionate, who left heaven to come and dwell among us because we were the least of these that needed a Savior, that we needed help for our sin, and God came to us. So because we worship a God that does that, it's in our nature to also do that, not so that God will love us. We don't do all these things to gain his approval so that we can be say that we're faithful, but we're faithful because we believe in a God who is faithful to us and the overflow of no knowing him personally, is that we see things we didn't see, we're motivated to action, we're having compassion, and if we're comparing just ourselves to to other people in the church or to, to other churches, we're looking at the wrong thing. Our measure for greatness is our movement to compassion. How are we caring about the people that nobody's caring about? When we see that God does that for us, it's our joy and our delight to do that for the rest of the world. He's not asking us to do anything that he didn't do first. And he empowers us to have that same impact on the world. All right, let's get this last section. In verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I'll never forget the first time that I went to Africa. I was scared to death. Like I was so intimidated by this. Only the the super holy Christians are the ones that, can go and serve in Africa, and what's it going to be like? And I, I was really anxious about it, but I felt very strongly that God was saying to go. And, and so I went, and, and I got to be a part of a pastor's conference, and we got to, to visit some of the business projects that our organization helps facilitate. And, you know, you go on a mission trip for, for how you're going to help people who need help, right? But then here's the thing. When, when you get invited into literally their mud hut, and they feed you better than they've ever eaten themselves you receive something that you never saw coming and it changes the way you it changes it's changed the way i think about everything how could somebody who has nothing who eats rice and beans in a mud hut every day feed me chicken and cabbage and rice and beans and greens, a feast, so much, I couldn't even finish it, and I walked out of there broken, broken, because they put me to shame, and I realized that somewhere in my heart, I didn't see it like Bono said, I didn't see it that they're valued like I'm valued, I thought they were valued because I'm going to come and share what God's given to me, it didn't occur to me that the people that I thought needed my help, I actually needed theirs. And I I look here at this passage, and and it seems like most of the other times you hear about a cup of cold water, you think about what you need to give in Jesus' name. But what you see here is Jesus is teaching them about what they need to receive in Jesus' name. We can't, comparing makes it think like we have all the answers and people have what we need. But the truth is, is that in the kingdom of God, there's all kinds of people and it takes all kinds of people to represent the God that we worship. And so it's not just that that we can educate them and we can help them, but we have things we need to learn from them. And if we're not serving them, we'll never experience the power of that reality. Jesus is showing them that it's not about giving and working and what you can do for greatness, but putting yourself in a position to be receiving from people as well because it's mutually beneficial. I love it because the disciples are just so incredibly, like if you were writing a holy book, about the greatest people to ever live, you would not have included the disciples in that book. It's one of the ways that we know the Bible's authentic and true because it it puts all these warts in there. Why would you put We're trying to reflect the glory of God to a dying world so that they can experience eternity with God. But then we've got these stories about these guys who never get it right. But we see here that Jesus is leaning into them and, and he's saying, Here's where, let's talk about greatness. Here's the measure, compassion, not comparison. And then instead again of them going, Father, thank you for teaching me that. I need to make some changes to align with your good, pleasing, and perfect will. Instead of that, that's fun. Instead of that, Instead of like owning it, right? Instead of when they're presenting. And it wasn't a harsh rebuke, was it? It wasn't like other times. He says, guys, let's talk about this. Let me tell you what's really important. This, becoming a servant of all, becoming the last of all. This is how we measure greatness. And they don't go, we're in. Sorry. Let's reorient around that. Let's look for opportunities to be obedient. He changes the subject completely, just completely completely redirects. He said, so Jesus, um, we saw some people casting out demons in your name, but they're not even on our team. What are we going to do about that, Jesus? So what are they still doing? Comparing. They're not doing it like we do it. By the way, these are the guys that just couldn't cast out a demon anyway. These other guys are having some success casting out demons in name." And their expectation is that Jesus is going to say, yeah, let's go get those people and shut them down and set them straight because their expression of the kingdom is different than ours. And Jesus says, no, they're fine. They're fine. See, that we have this tendency when it heats up in our own kitchen to start looking at what other people are making. Because it's a lot easier for us to poke holes in what other people are doing than to admit the deficiencies in our own spiritual life. And the invitation, I think, here is it's okay to have made mistakes. It's just not okay to keep making them and act like you didn't know you were making them. We have the invitation here to be taught by the king of kings going, here's what you need to know. Here's what I've done for you so you have an example. Not only that, I'm giving you the power through the resurrection to accomplish all this in the same way that I did it. So here's what we're moving for. Here's the greatness that we want for compassion. And then here, they're still comparing. And I think that, that we have to understand this last thing. True greatness appreciates kingdom collaboration. True greatness appreciates kingdom collaboration. I've, I failed this test one time from a mentor, and we planted a church and led it for 10 years in San Marcos, Texas. And early on in our time there, um, we had a meeting, and he said, how many churches are there? In San Marcos, and I was like, mm-hmm, you know, 70? Sorry, my ring keeps popping that thing. Uh, 70? And he goes, there's one church in San Marcos, Texas. Again, I misunderstood. And with that information, I had the opportunity to keep going around acting as if there was all these different churches, but that I thought mine was better than all of them, or I could look at what the other contributions in the community were for the kingdom of God and celebrate them. And instead of trying to elevate what I was doing, we could start working together to accomplish more for the kingdom in our community. True greatness isn't threatened or intimidated or jealous by other good work that people are doing. Jesus, the disciples were trying to go there. Hey, shouldn't we get the credit for that? Shouldn't that come through through our group? And Jesus goes, No. If they're doing this in my name, I get the glory for that. That's good. Just let them be. And it's like a follow-up could be, now let's talk about our opportunities for compassion. True greatness appreciates kingdom collaboration. Everything that happens in the name of Jesus is a win for the kingdom. Are you okay? Am I okay? Some of you may have burdens that you're praying for and that God would save this person or heal this person. Are you okay if somebody else gets to lead them to the Lord? Are you okay if somebody else gets to carry your prayer into completion? Are we okay that God is using other people as well? It's not better or worse or elevated or or devalued. It's just that God's using different people to do different things all for his glory in different places. And he's very clearly responsible for defending his own name. He's okay. He can take care of himself. And he said the strongest testimony that we have is that the world would recognize the love that we have. And when he's talking about for the church, he's not just talking about the people in the room, but the people in different fellowships. And it's never been easier with twitter and facebook to to point out the flaws and to be critical of the way other churches or other denominations or other you know different expressions of the same beliefs that we have we can look at those and we can point them out and go they're doing it wrong they're doing it wrong and that's exactly what was happening here but the bible says if you have a problem with the way that another follower of christ is doing something that you have the privilege to go to that person and go why are you doing that Instead of going condemning and judging without even having all of the information, we should go and we should have a conversation. It's okay to go, I'm not sure that sits right with me. I understand the gospel to say this, what's happening there? But what the Bible says is we should go and find out more and ask questions, not just tweet about it, not just blast out how they're doing it wrong. We have to be careful. Because we understand that there's an awful lot of people in our world that need the gospel, and we're probably not going to get to all of them, which means we need the rest of the kingdom to pull their way and to be doing things differently than we're doing it. And we'll get these people that God's assigned us and given us the opportunity, but we need help. We need to work together. Being a servant to all means we're not threatened, we're not jealous, we're not insecure about other Christians or other churches. Jesus is encouraging He's encouraging somebody. The disciples are going, that's blasphemy. And Jesus goes, no, it's not. Now, I'm not saying there's not blasphemous things that happen and that we shouldn't be on guard. We should. However, we need to be careful that we're not known more for our criticism and critique and comparison for other things in the kingdom of God. What we can be known for is our compassion to a world in desperate need of Jesus. Greatness. becoming a servant it's easy to look at other people and elevate ourselves it's hard to live a life of compassion one is the way to greatness and one falls incredibly short greatness gets close it's not content with the crowd It, it draws near to jesus greatness asks questions i don't understand that i need to learn more could you help me understand more about that compassion? Greatness is then moved to compassion. Greatness collaborates, and greatness is becoming a servant to all, just like Jesus did for us. So this morning, in any room, on any Sunday morning, we've got people. You could be anywhere in your walk, in your faith. Some of you in this room, you may be checking it out, and you may be thinking, this is interesting to me. I like the way it feels here. and and the people are nice, and I know something's missing from my life, but maybe you've not come to the place where you've said that Jesus is what I am. I'm just feeling compelled to believe in him and to live this way. If that's you this morning, I just want to invite that to be a good question that you can ask. Is today the day? That maybe you've seen enough and you felt enough that you're like, that God, that compassionate God who loves like this and speaks like that, he's calling me and I want to be a part of this. And today is the day that I consider that, that God's calling me to be a Christian. If that's you this morning, man, everybody who's already a follower of Christ has been there, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'd love to talk with you afterwards if there's any questions you have about God or the kingdom. For, for others it's like you've already you've already considered yourself a Christian but you see something here that may be like Jesus pu- pulling you close and like you're not even feeling like you're in the crowd right now and you're feeling like man this is a this was good like I needed this and it's like I need this too by the way so it's like I'm, I should be in one of those chairs it, but we experience this that God's teaching us and helping us and to develop more of a heart for compassion and if that's you that's something that you can respond to by going to one of the leaders of the church and saying how do I move forward in this. I've got these questions. I want to resolve those, and I want to be faithful, and I, and then what about maybe you've already got an idea as we're talking about a vulnerable people or somebody in need of attention. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's um, somebody who's sick. Maybe it's somebody who's just really lonely, and you feel the Spirit just going, hey, that's something that you can do tomorrow. Don't, don't miss that. That's incredibly significant. That is you living on mission just as much as somebody selling everything and moving halfway around the world. If the person that God's calling you to is next door, that's a very short mission trip, and it won't cost you anything but a little bit of time. And considering them more important than yourself, it's something that we can do. And then if we feel like, man, I've gotten to a place, and I, I have a critical spirit of my own, I've had to fight against this the older that I've gotten, and and I've had to be served by people that I would have thought are on a different team in order for it to come home for me. But if all we're doing is putting other people down, thinking that that's making us more holy, that's something that we can confess and repent of as well. So we just see that God is inviting us to greatness. Greatness may look different than we thought. Kingdom greatness There's more than a crowd. It's not comparison, it's compassion. And we realize that we're a part of something much bigger that God is doing, calling people into his family and into his kingdom.